Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Henrik Johansson, co-founder of Gemba, a product development platform that's raised over $14 million in funding. Henrik, thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure's all mine. Yeah, no problem. So before we can talk about what you're building there, can we just start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background? Well, I grew up in Sweden, so born and raised in Sweden, uh, went to school there, got a master science, electrical engineering, computer science, started working for a American firm, Anderson Consulting, which is a big global management consulting firm. And after just about a year there, I had an opportunity to come to Dallas. And it wasn't like it was supposed to be a long-term thing. I came for six months and, you know, I never went back home. So I've been here since pretty much. But yeah, I transferred over, spent some time in Dallas, met my wife to be there. We met San Francisco. That's where I got on my entrepreneurial track and started uh, my first startup in, in San Fran during the dot-com days. And been doing venture-funded startups ever since, so uh, almost 25 years now. And on a personal level, you know, I live in Austin, Texas, a family, two kids, uh, Chloe and Axel, 15, 18 years old, and that's it. That's me. Nice. That's awesome. Take us back to the early days then in the dot-com era. What was it like back then as an entrepreneur? You know, I didn't come from entrepreneurial parents or families. Entrepreneurship was really foreign to me, quite honestly. I worked in management consulting after my wife and, you know, at the time my fiance moved to San Francisco, I was sent on the road on traditional management consulting stuff. I was traveling pretty much 90, 80% of the time and started reading books and started think, you know, realized that this was not what I want to do with my life. I wanted to do something different and, you know, started meeting people in San Francisco that started companies and, you know, you read about the internet and eBay and, you know, Netscape and other things. And just start opening my eyes to that this was actually a path that you could go, that it wasn't something that you had to be born to do, but you could actually decide to do it. And uh, met Tony Wilbert, who was my co-founder in that first business, and he convinced me to come over and quit my well-paying job and taking a, a, a non-paying job and, and building a startup. So, yeah, I mean, it was a super exciting time, and it was you know, pretty easy to get funding at the time because it was one of those times where two guys in a business plan could raise money if you had a pretty decent idea. So the early days was pretty easy to get started. And it was like San Francisco at the time was just like electric. It felt, and I think it was in many ways, the epicenter of the startup world. And it really felt that way too. So it was super exciting. And do you feel any of that energy now living in Austin? Obviously, there's a lot of media buzz about how a lot of tech companies are moving to Austin. Do you see any of that there? Yeah, I mean, not so much the last year, <laughs> 2022 changed things like quite a bit, right? But yeah, there's definitely been hype lately, you know, uh, with Tesla moving here for sure. And, you know, when I started in Austin, when I started my first startup here, there were just, you know, probably fewer venture funds that you can count on one hand. And now it's, you know, tons of them, but, you know, there's a new VC firm popping up for every month, it feels like. And if you go to networking events, I used to know everybody and now I go and I don't recognize a soul there. So it's definitely changed a lot. And, you know, I think changed for the better. It is a hot, exciting market. It's, you know, as I said, definitely cooled down a little over the last 12 months or so. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. 
And two questions we'd like to ask just to better understand what makes you tick as a founder and as a leader. What CEO do you admire the most and what do you admire about them? I saw that question and, and I'll pick someone that's not in the tech space. I always admire Yvonne Sherard, the founder CEO of Patagonia. You know, I've always been one to care about the environment and have a passion for supply chain and sustainability. Actually, just about to finish a book on supply chain transparency, talking about how we can help founders create more sustainable consumer products. And I think Yvonne did an incredible job at Patagonia of building a business over the last 50 years. I think their 50th anniversary is this year of, you know, proving that you can have a social conscious, you can do good in the world and still be build a highly profitable business. So I see that as an inspiration. Also pretty cool to see how, you know, in, in today's startup world, there's so much hype around rapid growth. And it's really cool to see someone that can build a business over 50 years, right? And it, it's still there and it's still cool. Absolutely. He's a marketing genius as well. I think that was maybe two years ago. I don't know if he was involved in it, but just Patagonia as a brand when they uh, they banned the sale of their vests to finance bros. I thought yeah. that was a genius, <laughs> genius marketing move. <laughs> yeah, it was awesome. And then you know, a few years before that, they did the advertising campaign, don't buy this jacket. Like yeah. they had all these ads and say, like, do not buy this jacket. It's bad for the environment. Of course, it's sold like, you know, cupcakes. <laughs> I think what's so interesting about that brand too is, you know, it doesn't feel like bullshit. A lot of brands have this you know, like fluffy purpose and things like that. But when you go one layer deeper, you find that it's, you know, not real. It's not aligned. It's not, you know, integrated into the entire company. But Patagonia really does, you know, seem to be an aligned brand with everything that they preach. Yeah, for sure. And of course, it's also good business and we shouldn't, you know, there's no way around that, that he's not a brilliant marketer and a savvy businessman. But, you know, they have, they donate a lot of their profits to charities. He was one of the founding members of the Sustainable Apparel Coalition that has done a ton of good, uh, you know, in an industry that creates a lot of waste and that use a lot of, you know, have used in the past, used a lot of forced labor or child labor. And I think that he's been an instrumental part in, in helping making that whole apparel business, a better business, a more sustainable business overall. Yeah, absolutely. And what about books? Is there a specific book that's had a major impact on you as a founder? And this can be a business book or just a personal book that's influenced how you view the world. I wish I had something unique here, but you know, the first business book that really changed my view of life was The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Like I still remember, you know, when I was a consultant sitting in my corporate apartment and you know, down in Southern Cal and my girlfriend was in San Francisco and I was reading the seven habits of, you know, how you can change your life and that there's, there's, there's delta between impact and reaction. So at a personal level, that was groundbreaking from pure business perspective and a founder, I think good to great is the best one by Jim Collins. I'm sure a lot of your, your guests say that, but you know, that's a book that we literally use in our business every day. We use this hedge fund concept to clarify our strategy. And, you know, I think he's just a brilliant writer. Nice. Yeah, that's such a great call out. It's a true, true business classic, I think. Yeah, it's based on reality too, right? It's not just some opinion. He literally took a science-based approach to looking at companies and comparison companies that were in the same space at the same time and which ones actually graduated from just being good to being great and identified these, these common principles that they had. So and he's a great writer too. So it's, it's entertaining and, and interesting to follow. Totally. Nice. Well, I think we have a better understanding of who you are. We understand you a bit more now. So let's switch gears here and let's dive into what you're building today. So to start with, can you just take us through the origin story? 
Yeah, for sure. Before Gemba, I co-founded and built a business called Boundless. Boundless was a spend management platform for uh, procurement departments, particularly indirect procurement in Fortune 500 companies. So people spend money on marketing, promotional products, print, and things like that. So we built a platform that allowed their hundreds or thousands of buyers to buy things together and thus leverage the collective buying power and reduce costs and all that good stuff. Uh, through that, we started working with some big companies that wanted to create custom products. And that got me on the road to China. And I traveled over there to visit with some of the factories that we're working with. And that was like an eye-opening experience to me, you know, going from like super high-tech factories that, you know, had robotics and automation to realizing that some factories were just like in the basement of someone's apartment, right? With mud floors, basically. So it really started like, wow, we do not know, at least most people don't know really what, what's going on there. And, and that, that really opened, you know, started my passion for, you know, writing and learning about transparency in the supply chain and building more sustainable supply chain. The other thing that happened is that we, for our platform, we allowed other small businesses to use our platform to service their customer. And it became, I experienced firsthand seeing how small businesses, you know, how important this product journey is when they create new products and how risky it is for them, it's mission critical, right? So if, if they fail in the product journey, if they try to create a custom product and that for some reason does not work out, that could mean the end of that business. Right? They cannot afford to have a hundred thousand dollar purchase order arrive and the product doesn't work the way it's supposed to. So, you know, starting to add this up and I met my co-founder, Stephen, Stephen Bluestein, who's a Product entrepreneur, Shark Tank winner uh, with this company, Pride Bites. And he had a lot of visibility into, you know, all the small businesses out there, how they're, you know, and their struggles in, in, in creating new consumer products. And, you know, we, we looked at that and looked at all the trends that happening in e-commerce. We saw that, the, the, wow, there's a huge, huge opportunity here in helping all the small mid-sized businesses to create consumer product in, in a more transparent and scalable way. And can you take us through, you know, what does it look like? Maybe just an example of a customer that you've worked with and, and how they use the platform? Yeah, for sure. So I'll take two steps back. So, so Gemba is basically a global marketplace for consumer product creation. And our mission is to democratize consumer product creation, to make it easy for almost anyone to turn their idea into finished consumer product. Why is that hard? Well, because when you go from just buying something in Alibaba, right? You're buying something that already exists. If you go and try to create something that doesn't exist, there's a lot of complications, a lot of complexity, right? If you're creating something, particularly with either moving parts that requires then mechanical engineering or electrical components that requires electrical engineering. Now suddenly you have two or three experts involved in creating that product. So you probably have an industrial designer, electrical engineer, mechanical engineer, and now you need to orchestrate their collaboration to produce an end deliverable that actually does what it's supposed to do. And what, what we've seen is that the complexity there typically exceeds the small mid-sized business, at least the small business capabilities, right? Because unless you have, can afford to hire designers and engineers and have them full-time on your team, also you, you don't know how to manage that process. And that's what we built Gamba to, to help people do that. So back to your question, right? an example, for example, somebody came to us before holiday season, I think it was you know, two years ago, one of our first big customers, so this was a breakthrough client, one of the big aggregators in the e-commerce space. 
And they had seen that massage guns was a trending product, right? You've seen those, right? Where you, this little handle and you hold it and you can massage yourself. And they see that, saw that that product was trending, but they didn't know much more about it. So they came to Gamba and said, we believe that we should create a massage gun. Help us figure out what to create, how to create it, find a factory to create it. And we want this product on the shelf before the holiday season, because we think it's going to be a big seller. So we connect with them with researchers that help them do the analysis and define, you know, the features of the product. You know, back then it was create multiple heads and, you know, create more silent engine and a carrying case, I think, with the three certain differentiating features. Then we connected them with a designer that had designed those type of products before, and the electrical engineer and a mechanical engineer. And finally, we found factories that had built those type of products before, so they didn't have to design all the components from scratch. And end to end, the whole journey took, I think it was 109 days. So, you know, just a little over three, three and a half months. And they were able to get that product, a new, unique product created, put it on the shelves for the holiday season and it became a million dollar seller. So that's, you know, one example of a customer that used all the different components, all the different services or offerings that Gamma can provide to take a, you know, product from concept all the way to finished product on the shelf. And what would that journey look like without you? Would it just be super fragmented and you have someone just going into the depths of the internet and, and trying to find a supplier in China? Yeah. Or what would that experience be like? Yes, a lot of people ask that, what's your competition? And you know, I think that the competition is the status quo, sort of the, the ham and egg in it, like, like you described. A lot of people, you know, you may go to a local product agency. So there's, you know, a handful of those in every mid-sized town. But those are typically pretty small companies that hire, you know, a few industrial designers and maybe a couple of engineers that could potentially help you. But what, what we've seen is that they typically don't have the connections with a factory. So they may design something in isolation and it may look pretty and they have great, pretty picture. You get all excited about it. But once you take that to the factory and say, Hey, can you make this for me? That might be completely cost prohibitive. They might require hundreds of thousands of dollars of tooling or, or molds and things like that. So even if you go to product design route, it could be really expensive and you may not end up with the right result. And then others, you know, that just try to contact the factory directly. They try to go, you know, through a sourcing agent. And there you often have very little control of what's happening. And, you know, you might get lucky that you find a great factory with high integrity that knows how to, you know, design the product if you're looking for. But it's almost a little bit like building a house without having architecture in place first, right? If you just start building without really having the detailed specs of what you're trying to create, the odds that you're going to get exactly what you want are pretty slim. Does that make sense? It's like writing a software program without having the design laid out first, right? To start coding. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And what about on the IP protection side? Is there any involvement there? Because I'm guessing that has to be a risk of the case of the go-to-market that you can bring for them, right? If they're doing it in less than three months, is there time for IP protection or what are your views and, and how do you fit that into the platform? Yeah, great question. And it is, it is a concern for many. And they're, without going too deep, I mean, there are really two types of patents, really. It's the utility patent, which is more for innovations, real, you know, inventions. And that, you know, probably takes two to three years or more to get approved and cost tens of thousands of dollars. So that's usually not an option for the typical consumer product company. And rarely do they have, you know, things that are that unique. Uh, then there's something called a design patent that you can get in a short period of time. And, you know, for a lot of sellers to sell on Amazon, Amazon actually do recognize design patents. And if you can prove you have a design patent, they, they will actually shut down the other listing. Uh, 
persons, they won't even get involved with utility patents because, you know, that takes a lot of legal proceedings to figure out if somebody's actually violating a utility patent. So yeah, short answer is yes, we help them in our attorney. So we can't provide legal counsel. We have a big partner network of IP attorneys and other folks that can help. So we can do a quick research up front and see if, you know, we believe it might be violating a patent or infringing on somebody else's patent. And if it does, then we recommend that they retain a, an IP attorney to do the research and help them figure out if there's somewhere they can get around that patent. Another piece of that, that a lot of people don't realize that if they go straight to a factory and start working with that factory and that factory creates a product for them, unless you have a legal agreement that protects you, that factory owns that product pretty much, right? So there's nothing to prevent them from selling that product to other people too. So there are a lot of those, you know, global legal challenges that you have to be aware of. And, you know, a partner like Gemba can help protect a e-commerce or, or any product company from some of those liabilities. Super interesting. And when you look at your customer base, is it made up mostly then of you know, inventors or small business owners with an idea, you know, something that would appear on Shark Tank, for example, like you had kind of referenced there with one of your co-founders? Or is it oftentimes product teams that are, you know, part of you know, big Fortune 500 companies that are trying to just develop and push out new products to market? Great question. So most, the vast majority of our customers are small, mid-sized. So we don't have any Fortune 500 companies. You know, they typically have whole internal teams, departments that do this. And then within that, it's typically, I'd say 80% are companies that are, are more focused on building a brand or product collection, right? Like they have a yoga brand or they have a, a weightlifting brand or they have a, a kitchen accessory brand. And maybe 20% or more that inventor that's come up with some completely new and novel idea. So again, we can help them both. You know, the inventor type typically goes through a longer, a longer journey where they spend a lot more time in feasibility study and then product design and, you know, can drawing and drawing meets these ups versus the, you know, more of the brand. Like let's say you have a yoga brand and you already have a yoga mat and you have a yoga hat and you'll order a bottle. And now you decided, yeah, you know, I also want to sell a towel or something like that. Right. They took with less concerned with that something completely unique and novel. They like to maybe customize it to their needs a little bit, but often you can those kind of customers, you can help get a product to market faster with lower risk and lower cost by starting what already exists, right? So you go, you start talking to the factories rather than starting from scratch. You go to the factory and say, what are things that you can make? Here are the needs of that customer. Can we create something within your existing capabilities that's going to be unique to this customer, but you don't have to start from scratch, right? And that's particularly after the recession, you know, after the economy shifted. We're seeing a lot that offering is really popular because people have less money to spend. They want to bring products to market faster. And as long as it provides some differentiation, they're okay with that, that they can't design every little feature from scratch. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And do you ever intend to go up market into like Fortune 500 or you know big enterprise and offer this as a more efficient way to do product? innovation and product development? Or is your goal and your know, long-term focus to really just dominate this small and medium-sized business market? As I said, our ICP is really the million to 50 million, but we do have customers that are over $100 million in revenue that have hundreds or thousands of SKUs. We work with several of the commerce aggregators that have raised billions over the last several years to buy up smaller SMBs. 
Uh, so there's really no upper limit. It's, it's more around what I talked about earlier. Most of those, the bigger companies already have internal teams that do some of this. But I believe that as Gamba grows, we will become an attractive alternative for somebody to outsource this. You know, it's pretty generally accepted that you can outsource software development. And many companies have both the internal team, but then they also outsource some development to Ukraine or India or other places. You don't see that really happening in hardware development or consumer product development, at least not that I'm aware of. And I think that the, the missing link is someone like Gemba that, that has a platform that has, you know, literally thousands of different experts on the platform that can come in and start working with you on that platform with a very low rent time and that you can find, you know, specific experts like some of the aggregators, for example, they may buy a vacuum cleaner brand, right? But they obviously don't have a vacuum cleaner designer or somebody with decades of experience in designing vacuum cleaners on staff. And it probably that never makes sense for them to hire that either, if this is one out of 20 brands that they have. So that's where Gemba becomes a great augment of your existing staff, right? Because we have people that work at Dyson or people that work at, you know, Bose, if you're going headphones or people that worked at Nike, if you're doing running shoes. So we can find that very specific expertise that can help with almost any product. And that, you know, probably has a decade of, a decade of experience in creating that type of product. And that's, that's this huge value adds to the customer that's trying to develop a new product. Yeah, I can imagine. And then is it a marketplace model then where you're charging a fee that these experts are paid? Is it a SaaS model? What's the business model look like? Yeah, we operate as a marketplace. Many calls it the managed marketplace because it's not just, we go beyond just making the connection, right? So it's not just a transactional marketplace where we sell something and it's not just a talent marketplace where we make a connection with a resource. But our platform is, and our company is directly involved in the delivery of that project, right? So it's a longer term project. It's multiple people that are involved in the project. And, you know, it's a very skilled and specific labor that's involved in it. So that's why a lot of people refer to this as a managed marketplace. And that allows us to, you know, become very sticky with the customer too. It's not like they, we, I mean, we almost have zero circumvention issues, you know, that a lot of marketplace deals with that they, they want to stay involved in it. But if they don't add any value anymore to that relationship, it often they get circumvented by, by the customer to go straight to the supplier. But in Gamba's case, the platform and the knowledge base, the collaboration platform is integral in actually delivery of the value to the customer, right? They could certainly call the mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, industrial designer and say, hey, let's meet at the coffee shop and <laughs> work this out. They don't know all the required steps and deliverables and, and how to orchestrate collaboration between those resources. Odds are they're not going to get it right. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And one follow-up question then on the on the marketplace side. So we've had a number of marketplace founders on the podcast, and they all talk about the chicken and egg problem, which is mm-hmm. something that I guess all marketplaces have to deal with. So how did you navigate around that? You know, just looking at the site, 1,200 plus sourcing experts, 1,000 plus product designers, 2,000 plus factories. Those are big, big numbers on that side of things. So how much attention did you put into building that side of the marketplace before you went out and started trying to bring brands on? Um, and yeah, just any insights that you can share in that journey would be super interesting to hear. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. Any marketplace, it's, it's a chicken and egg. And, and my, my answer has always been in any business, if you have to start with small chickens and small eggs, I know it's an imperfect analogy, but you know, a lot of people talk about 
nowadays atomic networks, right? That I think that when Uber started like the first time, their atomic network was like Union Street Station, 5 p.m. <laughs> because all they needed to do is to have enough Uber taxis available, you know, between 4.30 and 5.30 to be able to meet the needs of the customers that come out of the train station at that time, right? So, and, and typically if you can prove out success in an atomic network, then you can carry that model over and over, right? To other, other networks. And in our case, the, the atomic network has been more around specific categories of excellence or product categories. So today we have, you know, half a dozen, what we call categories of excellence, like sports and outdoors, home and kitchen, toys, pet, baby products, et cetera. And within that, each one of those categories, we then have critical mass of designers and engineers and factories. So that if somebody comes to us with a product in those categories, we can typically identify multiple people that could help them with that project. And that way we can make it competitive. We can, we can find the right people to work on their project. And then as, you know, as you build that out, you add category after category. So, so that's been the approach that we've been taking. That makes a lot of sense. And what would you say so far has been your greatest go-to-market challenge since launching? I think in any category-defining company, and we see ourselves as that, there's always a challenge to educate the consumer, right? People don't know that it can be done. And we get that all the time from prospects and customers. Like, really? You can do this? I've never seen this before. It's like, no, you haven't because nobody's done it before. So I think that that is the biggest challenge. It's a lot of consumer education that has to go on. And, you know, all marketplaces talk about that there's the hard side of the market, uh, of the network, and then the easy side. And I'd say on our suppliers love us for industrial designers and current engineers. You know, we're probably the best gig economy opportunity for them because it's the mechanical engineer, they post a profile on Upwork, odds are nobody's going to hire them, right? Because people don't know how to find and filter and evaluate a mechanical engineer. But we do when we can stuff, we can put them on your project and assign them to the right tasks. So the experts love us. The factories love us because we bring them qualified customers that know what they're doing, that have complete design specs, that have funding lined up and all that and the right expectations. So even though it's taken effort and time to build the network on the supply side, I think that's always been easier because the value proposition is so clear to them. They get more work and they get good work and qualified customers and you know, in many ways, they're doing the work that they've always done. So you don't have to explain to them what it is they got to get have to do. Versus the customer, it's it's a new it's a new experience. It's a, it's a new way to engage. It's like, oh, I can create anything through this platform, and I, you know, anything in between quotes. <laughs> uh, but I think that's also you know some of the most exciting things about building a business is really learning. Like, how do we tell that story? How do we explain to people what it is? And I think like many engineering driven companies. We started talking a lot about what we were doing and how we were doing it. And that doesn't immediately resonate with people, right? Ultimately, people, the value customers want from us is a product on the shelf, right? They want a product on the shelf that's going to sell, that is of great quality and a good price. And it took us a while to figure out that how to talk to customer and how to explain to them that they're not necessarily that interested in how the sausage is made. They just want real good sausage. <laughs> Makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned something there, which I want to dive a bit deeper into, which is, you know, category creation. So right. when you started the company from day one, did you view this as a category creation play? Or what were your views on category creation at the start? And how have they evolved to you know, how you think about it today? 
Yeah, to be completely transparent, I, I don't think I knew the term category creation when we started the company. Now, uh, Play Bigger is this mandatory reading for everybody on the team. But I'd say we, we always knew that this was big. We always knew that this was new. So I, I'd say that, yeah, we always felt that this was creating a new category, if they will, even if we didn't use that language initially. But then a good friend of mine, uh, Brent Hurt, is, a, is a, a very successful CEO in town, a good friend, he, he recommended when we were talking, it's like, you need to read. He was literally on stage at one of our company events and he said, Eric, you guys should all read Play Bigger. <laughs> and we did. And then after that, we, you know, we identified our, our thesis and our, our lightning event and all that stuff. And that was great because you got a framework for how to approach category creation. And what was the first lightning strike that you did? Or is that still coming? Yeah, we've done several, to be honest with you. It wasn't, we didn't find a way to do just one massive one, you know, based on what we talked about before, we kind of went category by category. So we've done mini strikes, I'd say, in different product categories, because it wasn't, there wasn't one show or like one event where we could go to and we're going to reach all our different types of customers. So uh, I'd say we are in a uh, thunderstorm in progress <laughs> where we do <laughs> little lightning strikes in different industries as we proceed. Makes a lot of sense. And what is the category then? Is it the or I see the world's first product development marketplace. So is product development marketplace the category or how are you naming the category and, and defining the category? Yeah, I think, I mean, that's how we define it internally. That is a global marketplace for consumer product creation and that you know, drastically lowered the barriers to entry to, to uh, create new products and bring them to market. But then, as I mentioned earlier, that's not necessarily how we describe ourselves to customers because they don't really care about the category or how we do it. They care more about, you know, how do we deliver value to them? Makes sense. And I saw something just interesting on your website when I was looking at it earlier today, and it was called Final Product. What is that? Is it a TV show that you're producing? Yeah, that's right. Haven't launched yet, but still in development. Uh, we work with a uh, production company out in New York that done several famous reality TV shows that I can't mention because then I would identify them. But but you would recognize them. And we're currently pitching the final product concept to multiple studios or TV networks. So uh, uh, hopefully we will get it produced and sometime later this year or early the following have a, have a TV show that follows the journey of, you know, our customers basically. And, you know, Shark Tank really starts when the company is already successful and they're looking for more funding to go to the next level. Final product starts with the idea or the concept or potentially prototype of an entrepreneur that have a great idea and haven't been able to bring it to market yet. And then going through the process of finding the best ideas and then the winner gets to get their, their product made and turn into final product. Wow, that's so cool. That must be so exciting to work on and I'm sure that's a lot of fun as well. Are you the host of it? Uh, probably not. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a day job that I have to look to and I'm sure that people are a lot better at that than I am. <laughs> Hopefully I have a, some kind of a cameo though. I can show up and, and say some catchphrase. You're hired. Or something like that. <laughs> nice. I love it. Awesome, Henrik. Well, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover for today. This interview has been a blast. It's been really fun learning from you here. Before we wrap up, if people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, I'll go to Gemba.com. We publish content all the time. We have some great case studies about you know companies that would help, whether it's from back of a napkin idea to final products or some companies that we helped that you know, couldn't get product out of China. We helped them move to India. So 
there's a lot of examples there of the great work that we can do. Uh, so uh, follow us, go to gamma.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram and follow our journey. Awesome. Henrik, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And let's keep in touch. Let's do it. Thanks a bunch. This is fun. Cheers. Take care. Bye-bye.